Welcome to A World on Fire, Season 2. And in an effort to cover more Elseworld stories, hmm, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have my good friend Sean Ross here with me. How are you, Sean? I'm good, man. I, I'm good. I was going to do some kind of like Seven Thunders Uttered or, or, or some kind of epic <laughs> opening, but uh, I can't do it justice. I, I'm good, and I'm, and I'm even better to be present with you discussing one of the all-time great works of the comics medium. I totally agree, and uh, we're going to do something a little different here. So uh, you and I are going to cover the first part, and then, uh, well, let's uh, let me let me rephrase this. So uh, <laughs> we are going to be talking about the uh, the uh, opening salvo to Kingdom Come uh, from 1996. It's uh, you know it's one of those books where we were just talking that you know if somebody says to me, oh, there's no good modern stuff, I'm going to be like, oh, oh yeah, there is. You need to read this if you haven't because mm-hmm. this is so good, right? Yeah, though you're, though you're dating yourself by calling this modern. I mean, it, it is 27 <laughs> years old by this point. <laughs> like, this like Kingdom Come can rent a car and have a have a family. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, that that is true. Uh, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a kid just about this old. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So modern modern might be a stretch, but but I know what you mean. It's it's definitely well, and it's also. You know, we'll talk about this probably a little bit more as we go. But it's a bulwark against those who say the '90s were horrible for comics. You know, the, the 90s were all trash. And it's like, really? Because Starman came out in the 90s and Kingdom Come. And, you know, so, yeah. So it's it's a it's a it's a great book worth discussing. Yeah, absolutely. That that actually should be the thing, not just a, a, I'll, I'll try to you know train my brain to say not a modern comic anymore. But if somebody says, oh, the 90s are awful, like, well, no, no, no. Hold on. Read mm-hmm. this. It was really good because I didn't actually read this when it came out. I was totally a Marvel fanboy in the 90s. I read no DC. So I actually had heard about this, but, you know, I wasn't steeped in D.C. And I thought, uh, maybe I'll eventually read that, but, you know, not right away. And I was I believe I was in a store and I don't know if it was a, a free comic book day or just a, a periodic sale at the one store I used to go to. They'd have three or four a year where they'd have really good sales. And I remember seeing this gorgeous hardcover mm-hmm. and it was, uh, I, well, I guess 96 to 2016 would be a 20 year anniversary wow. uh, edition. And it was gorgeous. And I thought, well, no better time than the present. So that's when I bought it and I read it immediately, which is weird for me. Usually I buy tons of things. They just sit on a shelf for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to read this. So I read it right away. And I was like, Wow, this is so, so good. And I actually haven't been back to it since. But yeah, you and I are going to cover issue one here, which is uh, cover dated July 1996. And of course, everybody, I'm sure, you know, uh, not to uh, put uh, baby slash Mark Wade in a corner, but I'm sure everybody, (laughs) (laughs) when they think of, you know, Kingdom Come, uh, they think of Alex Ross. And I mean, how could you not? I mean, just this cover alone is awe-inspiring. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the cover is is gorgeous, and the, and the covers for this book, for this entire mini, are just iconic. I mean, it's and and it's funny because I always confuse. Now, I I bought this book off the Rex. I bought it when it came out. I remember I was reading uh, previews for it. I don't. This is how old I am. I don't know if it was Wizard yet, or if it was like Direct Currents, or whatever <laughs> the whatever the previews you know, that, that came out where they, they, they were touting this book as sort of the, the marvels for DC, right? Cause mm-hmm. Ross had already done marvels with Kurt Busiek, uh, over at Marvel and the covers alone are worth the price of admission, just the costume redesigns and the, the sheer number of new characters created is like, 
Lee and Kirby-esque. It's, it's incredible. But it's funny because I always get the first issue cover wrong. I always think it's the cover with the priest. I always think it's the cover with Norman, with all the mm-hmm. heroes, because it makes sense to me that the heroes would be on the cover of issue one, but it's not. It's the cover with the Spectre and all the next generation, quote-unquote, heroes, so really villains. And <laughs> and it's thematically, it makes more sense. Thematically, it's more it's more appropriate that they grace the cover of issue one. But it's funny how much, I just over the years, I always forget that. But I, it's an amazing cover. And as somebody who's a big Spectre fan, I love the, the Spectre being center stage. And I love him as the sort of, he's not black and white, but kind of close against mm-hmm. the palette of just crazy colors exploding off the page. It just makes him stand there and it makes him all the more somber and all the more serious as he's surrounded by all of these next gen heroes many of whom will go on to appear over the next you know 10 years especially in jeff johns's jsa book mm, fantastic yeah we'll we'll use the term uh, heroes very loosely in this book yes you can we're... hear the quotation marks <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about this issue yeah yeah this is fantastic and i'm I'm assuming it's a wraparound cover because in the, the yep. hardcover here, it's like, yeah, oh, it looks fantastic. And I really, I look at this cover and I, I think I can name like a whole three characters. <laughs> well, that's what's so funny. So you've got, you know, you've got the Spectre and you've got, you know, Magog, obviously on the cover mm-hmm. with the big bats. Yeah. And then Captain Adam in in a funky suit that wild, that Captain Adam versus Wildstorm, a miniseries in the 2000s would would put him back in. But yeah, the rest are are relatively new creations. On the back, it's interesting. It throws me because you have Jakeem Thunder, who appears in you know the the Grant Morrison Justice League within a couple of years of this, and then mm-hmm. you have Lightning, who's the daughter of Black Lightning, who becomes a member of the Justice Society in, in uh, Jeff Johns's Justice Society book. So some of wow. these folks appear, and then even uh, I think Nightshade is there too, and she's the a character in the kingdom, which is a sequel to this. So there are some folks who pop up again, but yeah, there's a bunch of, of character designs that are amazing. Like that Harlequin design that's next to the specter that mm-hmm. just, you know, maybe aren't ever used again, or if they are, I, I'm, I'm blinking on them. Cause again, this book can rent a car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, well this one, you know, this first issue is called strange visitor and it's uh, of course, uh, like we said earlier, we mentioned a script, you know, Mark Wade. But pencils, inks, and colors are all Alex Ross, and letters by Todd Klein. And uh, you know, I was—I <laughs> had messaged you earlier today, just be like, kind of like, mm, how should we attack this? Because you know, on the Grand Comics database here, there's just like a little quick one-liner of a synopsis. Or if you go to like DC Fandom, there's like one that's five paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always struggle with that because. You know, I feel like I'm going to talk about a lot in a comic anyway, so I yeah. really don't want to waste a lot of time on a synopsis. So it's like, do I really want to go that route or I just want to kind of dive in? So, you know, we kind of thought, well, we'll just do this little quickie here and then we'll just dive right in. Right. Sounds good. Yeah. This one just says Superman comes out of retirement to confront the violent modern superheroes following a nuclear catastrophe. And uh, that's that's a very broad stroke there. So mm-hmm. why don't we uh, why don't we dive into this very first page here? Now this very first page to me, I this almost looks like a horror comic to me the way this yeah. uh, this first page is. I mean, it, how would you describe this? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the the so the one of the things that's important to understand if you've not read Kingdom Come is that the sort of schema of the way the book is built is that it's the it's the book of revelations. It's the I think it's the gospel according to John. 
Um, it might be Paul or Ringo, but I'm not sure. But I think it's John. I think it's gospel <laughs> according to John. It, it's the the crazy gospel, which is what people usually call it, because it's like Mark and Luke are like Luke's like the sweet one, and you know there's Mark, but like John is the like, you know, Seven Seals, and like all the '80s horror movies are based on the that that Revelation book of Revelations, and mm-hmm. so that is the backdrop against which this book is set, both sort of sort of thematically and even visually in many ways, and so it opens with an actual quote from the book of revelations and it's got this you know and it's you know there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake you know it's really really dark it's you know whoa 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 to the inhabitants of the earth but you get a an unmistakable bit of imagery here which is an eagle draped in the american flag pointing a spear at a bat (laughs) so it's like oh okay (laughs) superman wonder woman batman and then there's all of this fire on the next two-page splash page, you know, mm. lava, fire, people burning. It, I mean, it, it's it's reminiscent of if you ever read the the descriptions of hell that emerged from like early biblical scholars, it, it was from a place called Golgotha, which was the dump, basically the landfill. And Golgotha was, I mean, if you imagine how gross our modern landfills are, imagine them centuries ago, you know, rotting corpses and and just the, the just the the disgusting things that are are present there. So like the smell of Golgotha and the the sense of of kind of dread and death and decay that really informed biblical writings and descriptions of hell. And that's a lot of what you see here, like lake of fire. You know, everything's very red. Everything's very reminiscent of a of an idea of hell. And I mean, it's it's incredible because you see two really important pieces of foreshadowing. On the left side of the page is a hand with a thunderbolt reaching out of the water, which is going to be, you know, a Captain Marvel reference. And on the right is, and you don't know it at the time, it's, you know, Superman sort of burning in red flame, which is going to be an important image later on. So it definitely sets a tone. I mean, did you, when you read it, was the biblical imagery there for you? Yeah, absolutely. And part of the reason is because when I was a little kid, uh, one of the first <laughs> churches I went to was a, uh, a an old school Baptist church. And <laughs> the old dude that was the minister was one of those hellfire and brimstone <laughs> pulpit pounder kind of guys uh-huh. like, you know, fear. And yeah, so this really struck a chord with me uh, that the imagery was like, Oh, yeah, I remember this <laughs> from being a little kid. And I will say, too, that I think, you know, Mark Wade and Alex Ross, they work together brilliantly here because the yeah. imagery is fantastic. And Mark Wade does add one, two, three, four, five uh, little caption. I don't know if I call them caption boxes, but little captions, uh, two on one page and three on the other. And it doesn't intrude on the artwork and what Ross is trying to show you here at all. And, but it's, it's good stuff. You know, it's more of the, uh, more of the, the, the biblical stuff here too. Well, and it calls it shot right from the first page. It says, Hey, this is designed to be operatic. This mm-hmm. is designed to be an Epic and like epics, it's going to end in tragedy. Like that, like there may be some sense of victory, but there is going to be tragedy along the way. And so they, they don't pull any punches and the coloring is, I mean, you know, we got it. We have to give Ross credit because the coloring is just transcendently good. I mean, it's mm-hmm. unbelievably beautiful in this book, and it sets it. It's so much of the color story sets the mood for the book in a way that the the 
sort of painting or penciling and, and writing alone don't. So uh, if, you know, if this had been colored by somebody other than Ross, I'd be, you know, waxing their car too. But Ross deserves tons of credit because the, I think the coloring is the secret weapon in this book. Yeah, I would love to have seen his process for this, uh, mm-hmm. just just to do this. It's it's incredible. And, you know, you, you flip to the next page and we, we get some, you know, what uh, everybody would think they're going to get when they open a comic book, which is some, you know, traditional comic book, you know, panels, layouts, whatnot. And uh, right away, this is just, you know, uh, this had me on cloud nine because, you know, my, my favorite uh, old school JSA uh, is the Sandman. And mm-hmm. I, I, I absolutely love him. Uh, it, he's fantastic. And we see, you know, a, a minister here talking to him while he's uh, in a hospital. And he's, he's not, you can tell he's not doing very well, that he's close to passing. But, oh, this just got me right away, this first scene here. What about you? Yeah, I'm a huge Wesley Dodds fan. I love, did you read Sandman Mystery Theater? That's I have not. For- uh, I think we've probably talked about this before. Uh, it's it's brilliant. It, it's Matt Wagner's the writer, I think, of the whole series. Guy Davis is the penciler of most of it. Mm. So the, the art is brilliant. The writing is phenomenal. I'm going to give a giant caveat to, to listeners. It is amongst the darkest books you'll ever read. And not dark like um, Evil Ernie or, or something, you know, like horror. It's dark as in, like, it deals with, hardcore crimes. It's like the law and order SVU of the, of of the 1940s. Like it's, it, it doesn't pull any punches, but it is also, I fell in love with Wesley Dodds. I fell in love with Diane Belmont, his wife. It is the, one of the best under like stealth series of the nineties. It's, it's unbelievably good. And then I also love him, you know, just from the JSA and, and other appearances, but that's the book where you really get to know him and so anytime he pops up after that, and and oh, by the way, it's funny with you and I, Billy, we have, you, have a, you have a good sense of timing as a podcaster. You know, just recently we recorded about Power Girl's first solo adventure in Showcase, and mm-hmm. we were talking about how there's a new Power Girl book on the stands. Well, Wesley Dodds opens this book on his deathbed, and there's a new, you know, quasi event going on at DC called Night Terrors. And it's a whole dreamscape thing. And Wesley Dodds just got resurrected by Boston Brand, Dead Man, in the last issue, which came out oh, like wow. this week. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's yeah. So anyway, good timing. <laughs> That's right. That's fantastic. Yeah. This this beginning here really got me. It's you know, like we said, Wesley Dodds here. He's in his hospital bed on, on you know you know his last legs here. And this uh, uh, minister or pastor, he calls him here, is uh, Norman McKay. And uh, he's going to be a POV character for us here. And he has uh, he, he's going to by the time this series is over, there's there's a lot going on with him. We'll just say that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's a nice little touch about him is he's named after Windsor McKay, who's the comic artist who did Little Nemo in Slumberland, which mm-hmm. is like you talk to any comic book artist and that's like a transcendent work for them. So Ross gave him that last name on purpose. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, he's basically, you know, Dodds is basically saying to him, like, hey, you know, I've been having these, you know, divine prophecies. I've been seeing these, uh, you know, visions. And uh, the pastor is trying to say, like, nightmares. You, you've been, it, they're nightmares. And he's like, they're not nightmares, they're visions. And he's trying to convince him that there's something uh, of a, you know, to quote uh, Ghostbusters, a, a biblical proportion coming. <laughs> <laughs> Gozar's coming. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the, the pastor's not having it. But he kind of says to him, like, dude, it's it's happened. He's like, the sands run out, and I can do nothing but wait in my own filth for sleep to finally claim me. Someone must act. And I like how he's opening a drawer and getting his hat out. Like, he, he's he's ready yeah. to go here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's nice that he's a man of action even until death. And uh, James mm-hmm. Robinson does a good job with this and Tony Harris. And there's that Sandman. I think it's a three-parter. 
where an elderly Wesley Dodds teams up with Jack Knight and, mm-hmm. and same thing, like gets the suit, gets the gas mask, gets the gun. And, and Jack Knight's like, you know, F yeah, these guys are still bad at like, you know, I like yeah. kind of he's the reader in that moment, right? You're like super excited that, that Wesley still is going to, you know, duke it out. But what Norman doesn't know is happening here is that, you know, Wesley has always been a conduit for the dream time. He's always been, well, always a la Neil Gaiman Sandman, but he's a conduit for the dream time. And so Wesley as the Sandman has had this sort of extra connection to the dreaming or to prophecy. And he passes it on to Norman in this moment, which is going to be an important plot point later. You don't, you don't really know it's happened in this moment, but later we'll get some clarity on that, that Wesley has basically given him the provision of his visions. Yeah, he passed this gift on to this uh, McKay. And uh, one of the last things McKay says to him is, please take comfort. There is peace awaiting. Mm-hmm. And Wesley looks at him and says, for me, not for you. And I was yeah. like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah, talk about foreshadowing. Yeah. Ooh, somebody saying that to you while they're on their deathbed. That's that's a little eerie. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's enough to send a shiver down your spine. I'd be like, whoa, dude, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, and then I love how, you know, all these panels are in like more of a, I don't know if I want to say pastel-y, but a more muted colors yeah. and tones here. But then there's one panel on that page that's red. What about that? Yeah, it, again, the color story here is so important because anytime something's draped in red, it's, you know, symbolic of violence and death and destruction and, and again, revelation of the apocalypse. And so, you know, the red panel, Wesley seeing, you know, everybody standing over him, the, the two or doctor and the nurse in Sandman gas masks. And he's like, you know, read the book, read the book, read the book. And again, Norman is like and Norman even follows this up at, at the funeral scene after which which, again, a shift in color to like muted grays you know, kind of a wash of a rainy day. Like it reminds me a lot of the, the comedian funeral scene in Watchmen. Um, I do think there's a little bit of an homage to it here when Norman is at Wesley's funeral mm-hmm. and, you know, he's kind of staring at the casket being lowered and, and it's sad because he thinks there are so few people in attendance here. And you're like, God, here was this man who was this great hero, founder of the justice society. And, but all of his friends are dead, you know, like every, mm-hmm. everybody he loved is dead. And, you know, and, and and you and I are of a certain age where, you know, like I care for my mom who's elderly at this point. And you you do sort of watch as people age, like they kind of start outliving all the people who will show up to their funeral, basically, which is a horribly sad thought. But it's it sets, again, the tone of this, of Norman really reflecting on death right from the beginning and, and, and you know, the quiet death of, a, of an important man is going to be contrasted by the loud life of unimportant heroes coming up, which I think is really, really smart. Mm. And then Wade really, uh, along with Ross, of course, but Wade really sets the stage here for where we were and where we're at. And, you know, maybe even sort of where we're going to with, you know, these caption boxes in these, you know, uh, horizontal panels that are just showing, you know, some mundane things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we see uh, the Daily Planet. It says UN enacts more metahuman censures. And <laughs> I like how there's a pie chart and it says, well, censures curb metahuman violence. And 91% say no. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's basically <laughs> Pac-Man. It's no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just, you know, he's, he's, he's he, at this point, and like I say, he's our POV character, this uh, uh, minister, uh, Norm McKay. And... He's he's kind of walking around the streets here and, you know, he's he's kind of struggling a little bit with he doesn't want to believe what Wesley was saying is going to come uh, true. 
But the more he looks around him, the more he sees things, you know, maybe are a little worse than he's he's really saying. Yeah, and, and there's just these interesting visual cues. I mean, as he's walking around the city, there's like a car accident or or it, maybe it was damaged by, you know, the superhero fight. There's a taxi driver, driver looking at his busted grill. He walks by a wall of graffiti and who watches the Watchmen is on there, which is a nice little touch. <laughs> and, you know, and, the, and then you see a storefront and it says special signed game ball last ever World Series 02. So you're starting to realize like, oh, wait a minute. The the metahuman explosion is is impacting the world in some unexpected ways. And this is going to be a massive theme of this book, like the the idea that the relationship between metahumans and humans it's really vital to get it right because if it's out of balance, it can destroy both. Mm -hmm. And he does uh, say here uh, on the page where <laughs> at the top it's a, there's a, a restaurant he's about to go into. It's uh, so awesome. It's so planet, awesome. <laughs> planet Krypton, he says. Uh, he mocked their worth, these newcomers, and spoke instead of legends gone, of costume champions who had in his day inspired human achievement. Not belittled it. He swore he'd never forget the world they came from. He wanted them to be remembered. And yeah, he's <laughs> walks in this restaurant here. And I love on the outside of the restaurant where it says Planet Krypton. It has a, a planet exploding. And then <laughs> it has uh, some heroes. And I like how uh, they have, you know, GL, Plastic Man, Wonder Woman, and The Flash all kind of bunched together. Mm -hmm. And then around the corner, you have Lobo. <laughs> Lobo. <laughs> and then far down the left end uh, is Batman all by himself. <laughs> yeah, well, what, and it's what's really so. There's so many things that are so brilliant about Planet Krypton. One, again, for listeners who may be a little younger, there was a restaurant in the '90s called Planet Hollywood that mm -hmm. celebrated, as if Hollywood doesn't celebrate itself enough, celebrated <laughs> you know the, the glory days of Hollywood. And when you'd go into the restaurant, there'd be props from famous movies and all of this fun stuff. Um, and so you know the idea of bastardizing these heroes in this way. Two. The Planet Krypton logo is so unbelievably offensive to Superman and Supergirl. <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, yeah. hey, we took your dying planet and we turned it into a logo. And it's so ridiculously wrong. It's, but then the thing I want to point out is, is did you notice the all the superhero cutouts except for Lobo are from the Super Friends? They're yeah. all Ramona Freighton, Alex Toth. Yeah, you know, Wonder Woman's pose, Flash's pose. So, again, the, the the sort of most innocent versions of those heroes, and and that to me is really again thematically Ross's. It reminds me of of Dave Gibbons and Watchmen, where mm -hmm. the, the art is just doing a lot of the lifting. Not that Wade isn't brilliant and isn't the perfect writer for this, but the art's doing a lot of the lifting of telling you the theme of the book. Yeah, and like I said, I think, you know, you, you can even credit Wade because, you know, he was the writer. I'm sure he could have written more and slapped more word balloons and things, captions on here, but he didn't. And I'm glad he didn't because yeah. that let the story really breathe and just it let Ross show off. And I mean, at this point in 1996, Ross hadn't been doing comics that long. It's no. not like not like now where he's this established juggernaut. You can see his stuff everywhere. He was like the new kid on the block. Yeah, he had Marvels and he had like a done a like a Terminator miniseries. And then <laughs> this like like, you know, so so very much this is his, you know, like Marvels and this are his sounding call to the industry that, you know, that things are going to change. And I love when Norman walks into Planet Hollywood, <laughs> you see a guy who looks very much like Hal Jordan turns around. And he's like, good afternoon, citizen. How may I serve you? And then the guy just starts you know, uh, talking about how great his costume looks on him. Like he's, you know, he really does look like Hal Jordan. And then you get the lay of planet Hollywood. 
And there's like an Aquaman waiter, a Wonder Woman waitress. Fire Beatrice DaCosta from the Justice League is at the bar asking for the manager. It's Booster Gold. So you're like, oh, that makes sense. Booster founded this restaurant. <laughs> but then what's really cool is on the TV screens playing up top are Sugar and Spike. So yeah. again, a, a kind of like a reminder of a more innocent time in the comics industry being bastardized and monetized. And and so just a really cool idea. Then did you read did you read The Kingdom? Did you read the follow up to this? I did not know. Okay. So it's uneven and and some people hate it. I think it's really good. I think it's really worth reading. Uh, definitely, you know, Ross isn't a part of the interior art, though he does do some covers. Wade is the writer. But Planet Hollywood becomes a massive plot point in that book um, in a really fun way, in a really like Rube Goldberg kind of way. So mm -hmm. I, I get an even bigger grin when I see it because it's such a fun part of the sequel. And I love all the props in this place, too. There's a Batman uh, suit. There's the, the the rocket from Krypton and a, a Batarang and the, the green arrow boxing glove arrow and bow. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's just awesome. And it's such a good idea of the crass sort of commercialism. And but it plays off. It's funny because it plays off the 90s, but it doesn't feel dated because it feels like something that could happen today. And, and I really like what Wade is doing here because we've given Ross a lot of credit, but you know, Wade is really thinking about or has Norman thinking about, you know, the the fear of the future that that Wesley Dodds died. Norman's thinking about how Wesley died with this great fear of the future. And he's like, you know, he's not alone. And he's like, you know, according to the world word of God, the meek will inherit the earth. And he's like, maybe someday. But that didn't account for the mighty. And then you get this great splash page of all these oh. quote unquote heroes in the midst of the battle in the middle of the city street with just no attention being paid to the civilians around. Yeah, that page is incredible. And like you said, there's a lot of, you know, new characters here created wholesale, you know, just right out of the blue here for this. And like you said, we're going to use the term heroes very loosely because, you know, what basically, you know, the the minister here comes to, you know, and everybody at this point even realizes, you know, these heroes, it does say at some point in here, like almost like there aren't any super villains anymore. Yeah. But, the superheroes just fight amongst each other, which kind of makes them all villains now as well. So maybe, you know, there aren't, uh, you know, super villains like, you know, there are in uh, regular comic books at this time uh, running around, you know, robbing banks or whatever. But these these these, you know, air quotes, uh, superheroes, they're most of them are just as bad. Right. Yeah. And that's what I think is a really interesting idea, which is the the previous generation of heroes sort of put everybody, all the villains away like they took care of it all. Like the villains are gone. It's really not a concern anymore. And so these new superheroes are all young and dumb and, and you know, hopped up on their own power and they have nowhere to go with it. They, have, they don't know what to do with it. And so they turn on themselves and they turn on each other and it's just random, senseless violence. Now, you know, and, it, and it's really it's really an interesting idea because I've seen the other idea played out in some comics series before where. The heroes take care of all the villains and then they all just retire, you know, and it's like mm -hmm. quiet after that. Or they, you know, they go into other sort of, you know, they try to change the world in other ways. And it's an interesting idea to think about, like, oh, what do you do if you raise this whole generation with this expectation that they're going to be legendary like their parents? And then the ability to be a legend is just taken away from them. You know, I mean, it's really fascinating. It's and and it's it's almost understandable. But I mean, no, they're de we're de definitely not supposed to sympathize with them. <laughs> No, but yeah, this this two pager here is really wild. It's a it's a little chaotic, a little busy, so you really have to pour over it a few times to see what all's going on and how it all connects and 
I think, uh, you know, again, Wade does a good job here. He says uh, they no longer fight for the right. They fight simply to fight. They're only foes each other. The superhumans boast that they, they've all but eliminated the supervillains of yesteryear. Small comfort. They move freely through the streets, through the world. They are challenged, but unopposed. They are, after all, our protectors. And in the meantime, this poor little girl almost gets killed, and he has to, like, grab her out of the way from getting probably killed, at least hurt really bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the page ends with, uh, you know, the words, our protectors, and her looking up and tears coming out of her eyes. It's a pretty powerful stuff. Yeah, and the, the villain above her is a guy named 666. You know, again, biblical reference. And he's laughing. like, But but it doesn't look like, like not laughing like the Joker, more laughing like, oh, this is a really fun fight. Like, this is, I'm having a good time here. And and Norman's like, man, they're not even aware of us. They're, you know, and, and what's interesting is there is, again, Nightshade is there. And she's the daughter of Dick Grayson and Coriander of, of uh, Starfire and Nightwing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really cool look and costume. She'll come up in the kingdom. And then there's a xenomorph there. <laughs> like one of the people they're fighting is alien, is from the alien movie. And that's pretty cool too. And and this is the one place where um, this series of pages is where I'll do my my slightest complaint about Ross. He's brilliant. The art's amazing. It, it's This is nitpicky. But in the, at this point in his career, he's putting so much on a page. And the, the like art is dynamic. The coloring's dynamic. But, the, you know, the inking's dynamic, the painting's dynamic, but there aren't, like, borders for us. So you don't really know. It's like that rule of art where you have to focus the, the viewer's eye somewhere. And there's just a couple of times in particular where the viewer's eye isn't focused. And the the page can start to bleed. Like, I don't know where to look. Like, I, yes. it kind of bleeds together for me. So I lose a little bit of the storytelling. But, again, a nitpicky, but he's early in his career. He's not quite the storyteller he'll be later. Yeah, he's not like polished yet, like should yeah. we say maybe. But you, uh, the following page, you really get a focus on something here. And the top panel uh, has a news bulletin coming across uh, the Daily Planet on a big TV screen outside and says about Kansas. And at that point, all of these uh, uh, alleged heroes stop and look up at it. And we, we don't see right there on that page what happened in Kansas, but it, whatever it is, is is enough to make them stop fighting. And the words of... Uh, McKay here, he says, uh, in the face of superhuman might and superhuman odds, time has not yet run out for humanity. And then on the next page, it just says, I am wrong. Yeah. And I was like, wow. Yeah. And at the bottom, more biblical stuff here. And there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And then uh, we go to uh, uh, Pastor McKay's church here. And I did find this interesting that uh, I think this is probably something like I, I don't know. uh I don't, I've never had any conversations with any uh, clergymen about, you know, how they struggle with their job, just yeah. the, the, just how to how to you know try to effectively do their job and not let negative things creep into them doing their job. But that sort of happens here to McKay, doesn't it? Yeah, this is a very relatable couple pages where where Norman becomes very even more real for me as a person mm-hmm. because you have all these elderly people at his church. Again, a commentary even then on who does who goes to church, those that are close to death. And they're they've come after this Kansas tragedy that we don't we don't yet know what it was. And they are seeking comfort in their God and seeking comfort in their religion. And he's the conduit for that. And he lights into them with, you know, and the trees were burnt up and the grass was burnt up and it opened a bottomless pit and judgment has caught and he I mean he gets 
you know, he's sinners in the hands of an angry God. Like he gets real John Donne on us mm-hmm. and he looks at them and it's a great bit of art because his eyes say everything. And he says, forgive me. And, and, and he's like, they can't forgive me because they came to me for comfort, but it's a comfort I cannot give. And, you know, I, I can relate to this in some way. I and mean, this is a, a different, but I was a classroom teacher on September 11th. And I vividly remember that morning, you know, the, the, September 11th, had, like it had started. The first tower had been hit. And I, you know, we all went to school because we didn't know if it was an accident at that point or what. And then when it became apparent what was happening, as much as it was apparent in, them, in that moment, we didn't know what to do as a staff. We were like, I don't, you know, and, and like, you know, some of the teachers wheeled like TVs in on carts so that they could watch news footage. And then, and and I remember two vivid memories. I remember the, I had a, a student, a, a girl whose dad was an airline pilot and flew the route that the Pentagon crash happened on. Mm. Now she didn't know if he was flying that route that day, but she knew he flew that route. And so she was, you know, really, really shaken. And then I had a student with special needs and he kept pulling my arm and I was like, what's going on, buddy? What's going on? And he kept pulling my arm and he pulls me outside and my school is in downtown Phoenix and he points to a building in downtown Phoenix, a skyscraper. And he goes, I don't see the smoke. And I go, Oh, Oh no, buddy, that's not happening here. That's happening in another city. And he's like, my mom works in that building. I don't see the smoke. So he thought it was happening here. Oh. And he thought his mom, like, so I, like, I have these vivid memories, right? So we have to go, we send the kids home and we have to go with the next day. We go back to school. And I remember standing in front of my first period and I looked at them and I go, I don't, I can't be Mr. Ross right now. I have to be Sean, which I know is weird for you. And I know right now you need me to be Mr. Ross and you need me to be an adult and you need me to have guidance for you and perspective and answers. And I have none. And I'm so sorry. And they, to their credit, my kids were like, well, yeah, and so we ended up having this great talk. And, but I just remember being like, I cannot be for them what they need right now. So this moment really hits me hard because I, you know, I've been in a version of it where people who counted on me needed me to explain the unexplainable and I just couldn't do it. And it's, and it's, it's heartbreaking to be honest with you. Like I still, I forgive myself, but I still think back on that moment as one of my great failings as a teacher. Yeah, this is, it's, it's a, to try to put yourself in his shoes is, is a, yeah, this would be a very difficult thing to do, uh, to, uh, the difficult pill to swallow, let's yeah. say. And I do think, uh, one thing that's, uh, kind of funny here, uh, not to make light of the, <laughs> what's going on in the comic book, but on that first page, uh, the middle panel looks like George Bush senior there. Of the oh people. yeah. It's totally Herbert. Yeah. And I think Barbara then, Bush is next. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, actually uh, McKay, the minister, as he's up there at the microphone, he looks like Wolf Blitzer. I'm, it's just <laughs> he, he does actually. Yeah, <laughs> he kind of does. Patterned after Ross's father, uh, mm, so okay. Alex Ross based him on his father, which I always think is an interesting touch too. Yeah, and then he's just sitting there alone in the church, and he's uh, thinking to himself about how you know when he says Wesley knew the visions he had, the prophecies, the dreams. I thought he was insane. But if he was, then so now am I. And you can kind of see him with his eyes shut, uh, having one of these visions. Mm-hmm. And it's it's again this uh, a, a panel where it's just there's a figure in this panel which we can't see who it is yet. Really, I mean, you can kind of make out it's more of a muscular superhero guy, uh, but it's like red and gray. It's just oh, it's really good. 
it's a, it's it's, a, it's like a fire and brimstone moment here, but yep. it, we don't know who that is yet. Yeah, and and then there's a great transition here where he thinks, um, you know, the he says, and the word of God is feels so very far, and then the specter comes in through the wall. He goes away. Like I can't imagine being a normal human. And this pasty naked guy in a green cloak comes through. I mean, at least he had the courtesy to cover his specter junk. But like, the, <laughs> this, you know, the specter comes floating through and he's like, I have need of you, Norman McKay. And it's like, what? I, I like definitely would be crumpled up in a fetal position. I is but I love the specter as a character. Like there have been, again, low key, some great specter books. There was the Doug Mensch, um, Gene Cullen one in the late 80s post crisis, which was super oh, yeah. awesome. Uh, and if you're a Gene Colan fan, like Tomb of Dracula fan, that's a great another great horror book by him. And then there's the Tom Mandrake, John Ostrander, mm. early 90s book, which is just brilliant. And then a lot of people discounted this book because it was Hal Jordan's time as the Spectre when they were trying to redeem him for, for Emerald Twilight. But it's J.M.D. Mateus writing, who's amazing, and Ryan Sook, who's an amazing artist. That's an amazing – that's only like 20 issues. That's an amazing run. So he's had – really good series over the years. And so I, I like him coming in and basically, and we don't get the setup necessarily in this issue that we get a hint of it. Do, in this first issue, do you get the sense that he's going to be lot from the Bible? Basically he's going to get the, the commandment from God, like find me one good person and I'll save this city. Like find me 10 good people, find me 20 good people. Uh, that it seems to be the setup where Norman is going to be the judge of, of, humankind or superhero kind, which I think is really, really cool. I, I might be splicing in a little what's coming a little bit in later issues, but you definitely get the hint of it here. Yeah, it's a very interesting conversation. Like you said, he, he pops through there and says, I have need of you. And he says, and now the visions talk to me. I have gone mad. And <laughs> very matter of fact here, Spectre. Yeah. Hardly. In fact, your sanity may be paramount to mankind's survival. So yeah, you're, they're right away. They're, they're they're tipping their hand a little bit here. And he, he touches his forehead and says, even as I stand before you, an act of unspeakable evil has begun to manifest. Armageddon is fast approaching. But you know this. You have the dreams. And McKay says, you see into my mind, my soul. You're an angel. And he says, of a sort, a higher <laughs> power has charged me with the task of punishing those responsible for this coming evil. Long ago, I would have judged swiftly with clarity but my faculties are not once what they were. In order to carry out my task, I must anchor myself to a human soul who seeks justice. And he looks at him and he goes, McKay says, but I don't. And before he can finish, he goes, and the specter says, you will. <laughs> so, I mean, it's again, so oh, good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and and what's, what cracks me up is the specter's like, you know, I used to act a little differently. Like, oh, when you turned into a pair of scissors and cut a criminal <laughs> in half, or when you turned a guy into a candle and lit it on fire, like that kind of different? You mean like the super dark late 60s Jim Aparo different? <laughs> or when I made myself into turn into a giant and overturned, you know, Nazi subs and stuff? It's like... Yeah, I mean, it cracks me up where he's like, <laughs> I had a little bit of a wild youth. And it's like, oh, that's, oh, oh, you're downplaying it, buddy. <laughs> but it, it is great. I, the, the, the other part of the scene... And it's funny that you and I are finding ourselves really drawn to the Norman scenes because they're the calmest, right? They're the mm -hmm. sort of lowest key, but they're they're emotionally the most resonant. When he says, Norman says, the specter's like, you're going to come with me. And Norman's like, I can't. I, my, I have my congregation. They look to me. And the specter says, for what? And Norman has to realize, like, oh, I'm 
like legitimately not fulfilling my role for them. That's pretty, again, really powerful stuff. And then I love the cut in color to a wheat field, you know, in what looks like Kansas. And then we get, you know, Clark Kent, daddy Clark Kent in his, his overalls, his gray beard. And, and this is an important panel and, and I'm not pointing out things, anything that no one's pointed out before, but the first time we see Clark, he's building a barn and he's holding a piece of wood, like a cross, like, like, like mm-hmm. Wade and Ross might as well have just put like a flashing neon Jesus sign above him. Um, <laughs> but it's still, you know, it still resonates. Yeah, absolutely. And I do want to say too, before we jump to that scene though, uh, when Spectre was still in the church with McKay, he does say that he actually was coming to uh, recruit uh, Wesley Dodds. Yeah. Not McKay, but you know, he, he died before he could get there. I don't know if he was in the potty or what he was doing. But <laughs> <laughs> he, that's, that's, that's one thing I thought was very interesting. Uh, but yeah, all oh, this, this scene on the farm is fantastic because it's, it's exactly what you could imagine Clark doing once he retired from being a superhero. But the problem is, you know, the reason he retired from being a superhero plus what's going on in the world now, um, you know, is, is for for everything we know about, you know, Kal-El, uh, that it's not going to allow him to stay retired. Yeah. And it's it's so cool because like they they show him Norman and the Spectre are watching and they, they can't be seen. And, you know, Clark is lifting up the tractor a la the Superman movie. You know, there's like just some really mm-hmm. nice touches here. And then there's a white dog and a white horse. So it's like, oh, Comet and Crypto. <laughs> are Comet and Crypto <laughs> there? Um, I like to think it's Comet and Crypto. Yeah, and, and he's just there by himself, you know. And and it's funny because Norman's like, what what are we doing here? Like, who is this guy? And, and the Spectre's like, well, he has powers far beyond mortal men. You knew him by a name, but you haven't heard it in 10 years. And and Norman whispers Superman. So it tells you a couple things right away. One, Superman's been gone for 10 years. Two, he's been so absent that even his name is sort of like lost to legend. But then his name is so revered that Norman doesn't speak it. He whispers it. Like it's, again, just heavy lifting, man. Great work being done on every level. Mm-hmm. And the Spectre does say he that this is a self-imposed exile as yeah. well. And Norman says, I remember he left Metropolis. Something happened, a trial. I can't remember what was involved, but I recall a sense of inevitability. Obviously, whatever happened drove him here. But my God, he is so alone. And I love how, you know, as soon as it's like he's so alone, uh, here's Diana. And this is a this is a really good scene between the two of them, isn't it? It, it is. Um, I'm going to sully it for a second and and think that it's really interesting that both the Spectre and Wonder Woman get Brazilian waxes. Uh, Ross, is, <laughs> is, Ross is not hiding there. There's a lot of uh, almost nudity in this book, which is, mm-hmm. again, really interesting thematically. But uh, it's funny that the Wonder Woman in this book is is at times so cold that I forget how warm she is in this moment when she comes to her friend, right, when she calls him. Clark and he gets upset. He's like, I'm, he he looks at her and she's like, okay, Cal, again, another telling moment where, you know, you see that he's lost a lot of his humanity, but she comes to him and he like, she rubs his temple and she's trying to talk to him and, and get him to, to see that this isn't healthy for him or the world. And I like this moment. I had forgotten this moment because I tend to think of her as very cold. And I tend to think of this as the moment where comic book creators were really influenced by kingdom come DC for the next 10 years is going to be really influenced by it after this. And wonder woman gets very like warrior 
aloof warrior who will do what's needed, you know, snap Maxwell Lord's neck kind of thing. And it does kind of trace back to here. Uh, and so I, I have a little bit of an issue with the way she gets depicted in this book, but I, I always forget this moment where she is very loving to, to um, Kal-El. Yeah, and she's just basically trying to say to him, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, a speech you've heard a, a lot of times, you know, the world still needs you kind of speech. And uh, she doesn't name names, but she says, Cal, he's out of control. Yeah. And he's and he says, I tried to tell them that 10 years ago. And she says, and they didn't listen. I know. Stop punishing them. And he just turns his back on her and says, I'm not interested. And she says, I see. Do you live in nothing but lies? And, uh, you know, it, it, they, they go inside here. Uh, he's basically, you know, inside the fortress. Uh, uh, it looks like, you know, a farm outside, but it's like it looks like it's kind of like a construct. But they're really inside the fortress. Yeah, which is, again, super fascinating, right? It's that it's like this cool dichotomy of he's still Clark in some ways because he wants to be on a farm. But he is Kal-El in that this is all an alien con- – like he really is so removed from his humanity. There are reminders of it, and Wonder Woman's reminding him of it. But he's you know, he's, he's just very angry and hurt, and that comes across in these pages. Yeah, and she basically says to him, turn on the TV, pal, and you'll, you'll see what I mean, and it'll, it'll change your mind. And I, I do love that scene uh, where he's uh, just uh, – it looks like he's just levitating in the air. And yeah. there's just television screens from every part of the world all over with all the different uh, you know, languages, which is really super cool. And then, you know, when you see the one that's in American, it's just there's inconceivable tragedy struck. And you see someone mention the word Magog and, you know, he's standing there and uh, he says Magog. And uh, we see, you know, again, here's what they were talking about on the television. But we we kind of slipped away from that without seeing what the huge tragedy was. And this is a. Again, these uh, air quotes, heroes uh, uh, battling, uh, I think it's Parasite, is it not? Yeah, and, and it's funny because the news report even says it began in St. Louis. Uh, the Justin Battalion, Justice Battalion, who's Magog's group, they descend upon a weathered parasite. Even the news is like, this isn't the parasite of old. This guy was clearly on the run, and he's sort of begging them to leave him alone. And they all rush in. For the kill, basically. I mean, it's really, you, you, again, you can see how much has changed that the, you know, they're using the name Justice Battalion, but they are definitely not the the Justice League or Justice Society of old. Mm-hmm. And uh, Captain Adam tries to, uh, you know, deliver a blow here, but Parasite is able to, you know, rip his containment suit open. And uh, that, that doesn't go very well for everyone in the next, like, three or four neighboring states. It's just... It's it's almost like a you know a, a huge nuclear bomb going off right in the middle of you know the heartland of America right yeah and it's it's telling you know the the depiction of it looks like um, you and I are the same age so do you remember the the horror of the movie remember the day after mm-hmm. that yeah. that made for TV movie in the eighties that showed the horror yeah. of nuclear war and it and it actually took place in Kansas uh, my buddy Gregor Rujo tells me all the time he's like oh yeah I watched that movie as a kid and believed I had died. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, so so Kansas gets blown up. And, you know, they show this picture of all these cows and dead and birds dead and trees dead. And, and you know, like you said, the heartland of America has been struck. But equally as resonant, the heartland of America is what raised Clark Kent. So Superman has been sort of struck at his heart. Like it's 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 not just, you know, it, it, it has a number of sort of meanings. But even still in seeing it, he's like. 
There's nothing I can do, Diana. Go back to your island. You're safe there, which is not what we expect from Superman or Wonder Woman. It's it's surprising. Yeah, really great panel of her flying away from the fortress there. And we see uh, uh, Norman and uh, the Spectre kind of in the green hue of the northern lights, I would assume. Uh, it's really mm-hmm. great, really great panel there. Yeah, and and again, it's it's really telling of how far this world has fallen that the greatest superheroes are like, hey, this horrible, basically nuclear disaster just happened because of our progeny. And we are not even you know, like, I'm not going to do anything about it. Like, I'm done. I've written them off. I mean, again, it's it's sad. It's like it's, you know, Norman is all of us kind of screaming for like, don't write us off yet. Don't write us off yet, which is a, a really powerful thing. You know, and then, and then we get <laughs> what's kind of a cook's tour of where's the rest of the heroes that we know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they start with the Flash and Central City and and uh, basically he, our Keystone City, like Central City's right next to it. But the Flash basically is the Flash all the time. He's just a red blur stopping crime and keeping people safe in, in Keystone City nonstop. And I have a question for you because I think this is a question that gets asked a lot. The costume says Jay Garrick because mm-hmm. he's got the the Mercury helmet. But Jay Garrick never had this kind of speed and would have been elderly and, and maybe deceased at this point. Which Flash do you think this is? I mean, like you said, it, it, it by the look, you would say it has to be Jay Garrick. But I mean, I don't know. It's tough because the Superman in here, you know, when you see the grays, that leads you to believe, you know, that's a it's more of an Earth 2 Superman thing, isn't it not? So I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a yeah, good question. I, I always thought at the time I thought it was Wally. Because Wally was the main Flash, and and the, and the, given the level of speed he's maintaining, you know, which is we don't need to worry too much about logic in this book, but you know, I, I but I love the fact that it kind of references um, Jay in the costume, and then it also kind of references Barry's death in the you know the race to through time. So I thought that was cool. And then we you know we cut to the Pacific Northwest where Hawkman is sort of you know keeping an eye on things. And I love that Hawk Matt. It's so impractical. I mean, it, it there's no real world practicality. But what are your thoughts on his costume? Oh yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. But I love the the dialogue there too. It says some call him a savior, others an environmental terrorist. He is feared and justly by those who would deprive the beasts and birds of their sanctuary. But yeah, it, it's really great. This these next two pages, I love these two. They might be my two favorite of the entire issue. Yeah, the the Hawkman thing is funny. Because that is not his character at all. He's never been a friend of the birds. Like, he's never been a protector of animals. Like, what? Like, no, he's mm-hmm. the right-wing conservative Rambo with wings. And so that one's a little bit of a stretch character-wise. But the, the costume redesign's great. And then, yeah, we cut to Green Lantern. And, and this is, again, where we could argue that the Flash is Jay Garrick. Because, you know, this looks like Alan Scott. You know, mm-hmm. it could be Hal Jordan. We don't know yet. But it, it also looks like Alan Scott. So, yeah, you want to talk about where he's living? Yeah, he has this uh, green construct emerald city, they call it here, not Wizard of Oz, but it sort of <laughs> kind of does look like it a little bit, but it's high above Earth's surface. He's out in outer space just sitting there waiting, and that's what it says. He waits still, and uh, yeah, that's an awesome page. Yeah, and, and we just get these nice cut, like like where is everybody, and it's they're all just kind of holding their breath, you know, or protecting their own little realms, like you know, it's it's funny to see, you know, Norman's like, well, wait a minute. There was a character, the hero who wasn't one of the gods, who wasn't one of the mighty. 
whatever happened to the Batman? And we cut, and you can hear the Danny Elfman music, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the dun, 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 and I was like, you can just hear it. It's very much that Gotham city. And there's these group of, you know, street toughs running away. And then this giant Batmobile converted robot, something, you know, fires the bat signal on them. Then there's a bunch of them, these bat drones, and they capture them. And I, you know, that's really interesting. What were your thoughts on modern day Gotham? Yeah, the that first, you know, uh, singles uh, page where it's just the whole panel is that the whole page is that robot like it's like a transformer almost. Right? Yeah, it really is. <laughs> and I love how it's a uh, it almost looks like the Dick Sprang kind of uh, Batmobile. Yep, it does, <laughs> which is fantastic. I love it. Yeah, and, mm. it, and it makes sense. It makes a sort of sense that Batman would go kind of authoritarian in this way, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Spectre even says Batman has his city under control. And it's like, oh, that can mean a couple of different things. And, you know, and then we cut back to, you know, the the quote unquote heroes battling on a bridge, the the new generation. And Norman's like, wait, that's it. That's all you got to show me. And Spectre's like, that bugs you. And he's like, yeah, you're an angel. You're a messenger of hope. And Spectre's like, I never promised you hope. And and Norman is, you know, hey, if you're from God, we need hope. You should be sending us hope. You know, this 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 is the beginning of the end. This is Armageddon. We need hope. And then it's, you know, set against the backdrop of all these heroes and and villains fighting each other on what is like, is it like a sky bus? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It almost reminded me of like a a cable car or something like that. Yeah. It's like a sky bus. And you know, and it's also super reminiscent of the scene of the, and you know, any Superman scene where the, the yellow school bus is halfway off the bridge and he has to come and pull it back. Um, you know, I think that's definitely something they're going for, but mm-hmm. it's a cool fight. I love this Harlequin costume. Like, did you like that um, that new villain? Oh yeah, that's neat. It's it's very much in contrast to anything we had seen before that I'm aware of. So that's why I think it's really neat. You know what I mean? It wasn't he didn't go Ross didn't go with any of the any of the things that he had seen before. I don't believe so. I, I really enjoy it. Well, and these new generation of heroes are all really monstrous. They're either mm-hmm. like Mecca or they're, you know, they look alien, they look inhuman, or if they are human, they're so maked up, you know, or, or like they just don't like it's there's a very purposeful line between Superman looks like a, a man, Wonder Woman looks like a woman, this new generation looks inhuman, you know, and then we get, I mean, the climax of book one, mm, love which it. is, yeah, Norman and the Spectre are on the end of the bridge watching this fight and all these people are going to die. And Norman says, don't you understand if any of us are to survive any of us now more than ever, we need hope, you know, and then boom, you know, here comes this red blurs, red and blue blur to, to save the sky bus, to put a stop to the, the pointless fighting. And we get the look up in the sky. And I mean, is this the, the next page, that splash page, it's got to be one of the five most famous images from this book, right? Of, of mm-hmm. Superman back in costume with all the, the villains in his hands. Except there's one key difference. The, he's got the black S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What oh, are your thoughts inc- on this page? Because this page is beautiful. Oh, it's incredible. And it's it was it was perfectly laid out and led into by the, you know, we need hope. And then, like you said, the red and blue blur flashing around like, you know, so fast the eye can't even see it. And everybody like, like, what happened? What's going on? And the page, you know, a woman look and another person. I think it's another woman up in the sky and <laughs> You turn the page and there's that iconic Superman there. That's just 
the pitch perfect by uh you know yeah. wade and uh ross here and then that that last page just has three horizontal panels here and uh it says he had not turned his back on us he stands in sky faith rewarded he is returned and then you, you see again we see now those panels we were seeing with that you know red and a hero that we couldn't see who it is now it is clearly red and it is clearly superman in the mm -hmm. middle right yeah and, and it ends with dear god the threat of armageddon hasn't ended it's just begun which is you know nice foreshadowing for the rest of the book and and it's it's so cool how influential this book was because the the first reappearance of superman he looks like a, a distaff god he looks like an angry god like he's mm -hmm. staring down in judgment and his symbol of hope has been perverted. You know, the S stands for hope. Well, now the S is darkened and shadowed. And, you know, it's 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 definitely not the hope we're used to. So, I mean, talk about for an issue that has to introduce the characters, the setting, the MacGuffin, you know, the main event that that instigates the rest of the book. Um, holy crap. Like. Like, this is a masterpiece. Mark, by the way, Mark Wade is young in his career at this point. Like, Mark mm -hmm. Wade has only been writing The Flash for, I think, four years at this point and mm -hmm. hasn't been a regular comic book writer. He did, like, he was an editor at DC. Yeah. And he worked on Who's Who and he wrote, like, miniseries here and there. But he wasn't the Mark Wade, you know, we all sort of know until this book. I mean, it's really, really cool. Yeah, this is literally his first big thing that really, like, really put him on the map for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's really interesting. Uh, what do you so you know having you came to it later? I I read it off the racks, having come to it later, and as a whole, but now separating it out for the shows. What are your thoughts on like part one, like as 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 part of the larger whole? Oh, I thought it was excellent. And as the story goes on, and we get more and more characters interjected into it, it was tough for me. And I'm glad I read this in the internet age because then I was able to go to certain websites and be like, yeah, well, who is this and who is that? And why is this person? You know, I mean, I, I was able to uh, piece those things together because if I would have gotten this off the racks back then and not being steeped in D.C., I would have been in big trouble. I would have been lost. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because you talked about this and, and people talk about how this is a really good book to give somebody who doesn't isn't really into comics but wants to know about the medium in my mind, it is, but it's also a tough book because it really relies on your preconceived notions of who these characters are. Like you, mm -hmm. if you don't go in with a reverence for Superman, the the sort of metaphorical fall of Superman doesn't hit as hard, right? So like it's yeah. it's interesting. It's and I I think it's so funny that it's written by Mark Wade and drawn by Alex Ross because they are definitely two of the more sort of retro looking creators of the comic industry. You know, mm -hmm. like Mark Wade's writing, even in the 90s, like his flash book was never grim and gritty, right? His flash book right. was never dark. It was always hopeful and fun and, it, you know, it was serious and there were high stakes and there was emotion, but it wasn't, you know, secret defenders or force works or whatever. And and so Mark Wade has always been a writer who has a touch of nostalgia to him while moving the medium forward. It's, it's not a negative thing. Like, like the best example I can give is a, is a modern one. The single best comic book on the shelves right now is World's Finest. It's mm. Mark Wade writing and Dan Mora drawing, and it's set in the early days of DC where Batman and Superman are still, are, are really good friends. Like they're best friends. Yeah. And it's this kind of romp between, you know, in sort of old school 
DC. And it's the best. I mean, it is universally beloved. And it's Mark Wade. He reminds me of Kurt Busick in that way. They're writers who have a, a, a real reverence for the comic industry. And they're not out to deconstruct it, you know, as much as like, it's their writing is almost always sort of a love letter to it. So it's interesting because the the seminal argument or the center central argument of this book is the the heroes of the past were better, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. these new heroes. And, and think about when it's coming out in the '90s. It's the age of the Punisher, and you know Keith Giffen creates Lobo as a joke at DC, poking fun at grim and gritty, and then Lobo becomes their most popular character. <laughs> Denny O'Neill breaks Batman's back. And gives everybody Azrael Batman, the the Dark Avenger of the Night, as a as a lesson to readers of, hey, stop asking for Batman to be grim and gritty. That's ex- that's contrary to who he is. He's never going to use a gun. And then people love the Azrael Batman. And so like, it, so like you know, Wade and and Adam Ross are looking around the industry at this time, and they're like, oh my God, where where is this industry we love headed? Like where you know where are the days of Stan and Jack? You know, are, are we going to be in a future of, you know, Punisher, Wolverine, Ghost Rider, Lobo, you know, and 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 again, there's nothing wrong with those comics. Those comics had their place and they were great. Mm-hmm. But it is there's a little bit of old man yelling at clouds in this book. And so I don't know <laughs> if if I'm seeing it more now separated from the context in which, which it was written, but there's a little bit of old man yelling at cloud. Do you do you see that, too? Or, or is it I don't know. I, I get a oh, little yeah. bit of it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, um, even when you look at comic book creators that have lasted a very long time, even the best of them, I think even a little bit at first when things were changing, were a little resistant to that change and still tried to keep some of the old school or norm uh, into their art or their writing, even if, you know, slowly but surely they did change with the time. So, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think for for Wade, for sure, because we know he was he's a huge comic book fan and historian yeah. as well as being, you know, one of the big names in writing uh, as well. He'd been you know, reading Superman since the Silver Age. So absolutely. And he's a little bit of a curmudgeon, you know, mm-hmm. he's a little oh, yeah. bit of I mean, I love him as a writer. He is he is one of my all time favorite comic book writers. He's brilliant. But he's a little bit of a comic curmudgeon. And so it, it is funny to read this book 27 years later, uh, <laughs> which is weird to say, because at the time I totally got it and I was totally in on it because I, you know, the 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 speculator market and the, all of that stuff was boiling and was coming to a head at this point. So I was I was in on the context and I, I bought in fully. And now as an adult and especially as a teacher people always write off whatever the next generation is, you know, like there's all these, mm-hmm. you know, oh, the millennials, oh, the Gen Zers, oh, blah, blah, blah. And as somebody who's a teacher, I'm always like, these kids are awesome, man. Like, like, screw you. Like, like, like the millennials are great. The Gen Zers are awesome. Like these kids are awesome. And so I always, am, I'm a little bit sensitive to, uh, things were better back in my day kind of perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I, I have a little bit, my, you know, a little bit of my hackles are up about it. Though it's not impeding my my love of this work at all, um, it's just a little funny how there's there's just a little streak of you know Grandpa Simpson in here, <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> I I totally agree. Yep, absolutely. I think uh, like I said, Wade. I think he eventually you know slowly but surely uh, just was like, oh yeah, well this is the way comics are now, and this is how they are written, and this is what the audience is looking for. But there's definitely some of that in this book. Absolutely, I completely agree with you there. <laughs> <laughs> but I also love that we've come back around to him that like mm-hmm. now he's writing what is what is universally considered the, the best book on the stands and is a is a a book of nostalgia, but not just nostalgia. 
It's also innovative storytelling, great art, great fun, great characterization. So it's like he's he's always been a writer. He, he uh, Kurt Busiek is like this as well at Marvel. He's always been a writer who's like, hey, I'm going to have elements of tradition, but I'm always going to tell a good story and move and move the medium forward. So so, yeah, no, no shade on Wade or Ross. Um, it's just funny to read this at a different point in my life. Yeah, like you said, uh, when you keep saying that, well, 27 years ago, it's like, oh, man, <laughs> yeah, that's 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 enough to uh, to make you shake your head and be like, yep, uh, it's uh, I'm not the, the young man I was anymore. <laughs> yeah, it reminds me of something you did. Uh, I curse you, you, uh, you and Herman, I think, in the first episode of, of World on Fire, the All-Star Squadron podcast, which is brilliant and people should listen to. You guys talked about how you were as far from the first issue of All-Star Squadron chronologically as the first issue of All-Star Squadron was from World War II. And I was like, I hated you in that moment. I was like, what? I was like, what? And I like, I couldn't, like it, I couldn't get past it. I was like, oh my God. Like I, I could not get past it. And it, it's it's this thing I think of all the time when I think about how old I'm getting. I think about you guys talking about that. And I'm like, curse you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see that on some social media sites sometimes, almost like there's one specifically putting that uh, meme out there every once in a while. And it'll yeah. say, you know, you're, we're, we're as far away from this, that this was to this. And I just always shake my head and think, you know, don't remind me. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, but no thanks for the yeah. reminder. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for, for letting me know how old I am. I could have just listened to my knees or my back cracking. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't yep. need you to tell me. Yep. Yep. I don't need that reminder. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was awesome, Sean. Thank you for joining me for this one to, to kick this off. So, you know, like I said, we're, we're going to be doing something a little different here. You know, each one of you guys from uh, the show here, you picked an issue. You picked issue one. Uh, Ross from Stop Let's Team Up picked issue two. Uh, our good friend Mark Gray picked issue three, and then uh, we are all going to collectively get together for uh, the finale, issue four, and uh, talk that one out. Which that's I can imagine that's going to be a pretty long episode because I think uh, I'm going to try to get everybody's thoughts uh, for the issues, you know, quickly. Uh, hopefully <laughs> that they weren't on. Uh, just a little uh, sum up what they thought of everything up until that point. And then, uh, yeah, we're all going to discuss uh, the fourth issue uh, uh, together, which uh, sounds like a blast. I cannot wait for that. I'm super excited. I, I'm thankful that you invited me to be a part of it. But I love that it's going to be all of us from the the second half of World on Fire, you know, that the, the rotating guest hosts from from the show. And, and, you know, we had all come together to do the last issue of All-Star Squadron, which was a blast. And so, yeah, this is super fun. This is a great idea. This is, a, for me, selfishly, it's perfect because I get to join you for an episode, which is fun. But then I get to listen, I get to, listen to Ross, who is brilliant, and Martin, who is brilliant and delightful. And and then, you know, we, we get to all come back together. So I'm super looking forward to this. I, this was a great idea. Yeah, I still haven't decided on a release schedule for these because I feel like, you know, maybe I'll just release all four of them like, you know, four days in a row or something cool like that instead of making people wait eight weeks to hear all of it that seems like a long time you know yeah but it's also i don't know it's kind of the netflix model right like sometimes dropping the whole series is good but sometimes making people wait is nice too <laughs> yeah i haven't haven't quite figured that out yet but i'll look at my schedule and we'll see what's going to go on but yeah really looking forward to talking to those other guys and then coming together for the the, the grand finale that'll be fantastic and then we do actually have uh i haven't announced it yet but uh, we actually have uh Another uh, uh, book we're going to talk about, uh, something uh, along, kind of along the lines of Kingdom Come here. So a little bit later on after, you know, typically we talk about the JSA stuff and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff from, you know, that. But, but we're, we're going to do something else, too. Uh, 
before uh, the, the the third anniversary of the show will be this November. So I'm nice. kind of thinking about maybe putting a bow on things uh, in November for the third year here, and then maybe just uh, revisiting things, you know, just every once in a while when the mood may strike us, but not a regular mm-hmm. schedule after that. But there is a, a one more big, humongous, huge DC story. Uh, I think uh, we all are going to kind of talk about, I don't know if we're going to do in parts or how we're going to do it. Cause it's a lot bigger than uh, the four parts here, but uh, really looking forward to that too. Cause that's a story that I've seen the movie and I've read some of it, <laughs> but I haven't read all of it. And uh-huh. uh, I'm really looking forward to that, but uh, uh, I can't wait to talk about that. It's like, Oh, it's like eating away at me. I wish I could just read it all and talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> no, that's good. And you know, and also congratulations on, on, you know, almost three years of the show. That's phenomenal. Yeah, really, I, oof, man, when it first started, I thought, yep, we're going to do All-Star Squadron, and that's going to be it. And I was like, yeah, that'll probably take about a year. And then, <laughs> again, yeah. here we are almost three years later. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's podcasting time. Fantastic. So, all right, well, if anybody wants to find you out there, uh, where can they look for you, Sean? Uh, so I'm on Twitter still, uh, Sean42AZ. Um, I haven't really branched out to any of the other social media sites. I just, I'm, I guess I like watching things die. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm still on Twitter. You can always find me there. And then, uh, you know, uh, old episodes of shows I've done are on Pulp to Pixel Podcast Network, and um, we haven't really done anything super current lately. I took a bit of a hiatus, but uh, as as you can see, I mean, I've just recorded two episodes with you in a month, I think, so mm-hmm. starting to starting to come out of the hiatus, which is great. Yeah, and then there's some uh, uh, back episodes of the Bat Pod as well. Yeah, uh, you were on. You could listen to if people are looking for you as well. So definitely check those things out, and I'll have all the links to that stuff in the show notes and. Uh, all right, that's going to you know wrap us up here, my friend. But uh, I thank you once again for being on. This was a blast. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I love getting to talk to you, and, and this was a dream come true to talk about this book. And I can't wait to hear the other guys talk about it too. Yeah, fantastic. So all right, that's uh, wrapping us up, and we're going to get out of here and uh, see you next time.